the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. VoiceAmerica.com welcomes you to Stars of PR with Cindy R. Now here's the host and founder of Rack and Roll Public Relations, Cindy Rakowitz. Good morning, everybody. That's Cindy Rakowitz from Blackman Rakowitz Public Relations. I have to get around to changing the voiceover promos, and I have a very, very special guest today that knows about voiceovers. He's kind of like the new king of advertising. I want to welcome Drew Hodges. Good morning, Hi. Thanks Drew. for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to have the founder and director of creative services for Spocko on the air with me today. Welcome. Thanks for, thanks, for, thanks for having me in. You have a lot of things to talk about. I'm very excited about your life, actually, and I want to share it with my listeners. Aside from the <laughs> fact that you're like a global superhouse now, I mean, you managed to pull off this collaboration with a very impressive British agency, De Winters. Congratulations. Thank you. We have to note for our listeners, because this is a public relations show, that, you know, we told you, we advised you that when you told BR Public Relations about this collaboration, that this would be a natural New York Times story, and so it was. And I'm sure you're very happy about that. <laughs> yeah, that was a great place to start. It was a very good place to start. So um, when Stuart Elliott talked to you to prepare for the New York Times piece, did you feel like it was going to be a great story? Did you feel like everything you were telling him, he was getting it and feeling it and it was going to be conveyed in his article? <laughs> no, actually, I really didn't. Because I, I, I really, well, because I, I, you know, Stuart Elliott's advertising column, the New York Times, has always, you know, I mean, everyone looks at it, and it's a really powerful pulpit. And um, but oftentimes, you know, there are smaller pieces, and he's doing his column is made up of three or four different stories of smaller uh, items. So I, I had no sense that he would devote the whole column to the idea, or that he would really get excited about. Broadway, it's a strange experience. You know, my firm does primarily Broadway work, although we do a much broader entertainment past that with movies and records and things like that. But our main focus is Broadway. And some people, you know, we sort of get used to that world and feel sometimes it's a little insular. So you're never quite sure what people outside of that world will make of it. So I knew that variety would be fascinated, but it was great that it sort of caught Stewart's fancy. It's good. Well, you know, the proverbial New York Times, they have to applaud Broadway, too. I mean, it's the New York <laughs> newspaper. I guess so. I mean, they certainly like to see themselves as a national paper. And in general, if you actually look at the Times, they give much more impetus to, uh, much more import to movies than to Broadway. So, you know, that's a, that's a push we're always after is to get the Times to embrace it more. I mean, Broadway in general is really trying to figure out how to become a national message rather than a New York message. Um, and that's been going on for a long time. Uh, it's odd, but there's a there's a trade league for Broadway, and they've been called the League of American Producers, some blah, 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 and now they just changed themselves to Broadway because the decision is that Broadway is not a New York phenomenon but a sort of kind of class of theater that happens all over the country. Well, not only all over the country, but really all over the world, and right. I think that that's a part of why, um, you know, the New York Times made a lot of room to talk about you know, what Spocko, the Winters, are doing. Because whenever, whenever something might be reflecting or predicting a change, and the New York Times kind of endorses that change, sometimes it's, it becomes, you know, you make the news, you write the news, and it becomes the news, right? <laughs> well, that's, I mean, 
It's an exciting idea. Certainly, you're right. It's been happening for a while that people who are doing theater here um, have started to figure out that what happens in New York is not the only thing that matters to them, that, you know, basically you can have a brand that goes or even begins in Australia and goes to Germany and then moves to London then goes to Toronto and, you know, starts off in Seattle or San Francisco, as Shrek right now is in Seattle, uh, or Young Frankenstein started in Seattle, and then makes its way across the country and sometimes now ends in Broadway where it used to be the reverse. No, exactly, and what's happening today, you know, and I think that Spaco is expert in this, um, is you not only see a Broadway live production around the world, but what has increased is the Broadway to movie, movie to Broadway, back to remake of the movie, back to remake of Broadway trends. <laughs> yeah, that, that's kind of amazing, actually, that you've sort of seen how many round robins of that and that someone will be willing. I mean, well, one, the Broadway shows, it's been shown that a, a, a moderately, even less than moderately successful Broadway movie will create a major dollar benefit to a Broadway show. So every Broadway show would love to see, particularly musical, but now we have you know, Meryl Streep is coming out in uh, Doubt. They just finished filming that with Philip Seymour Hoffman. So, you know, plays as well are very much being turned into movies, and they, they, they really created a lot more energy to keep the show going. Um, you know, many years ago, maybe not many, 15 years ago, a long-running show was considered three, four years probably more like 20, 20 years ago, but the, the phenomenon of the 20-year show is a new phenomenon. It has no basis in the history of theater in New York. Um, if you go way, way back, it never happened. Um, so, you know, I think this is almost a, a natural outgrowth out of if a show like A Phantom can last that long or Chicago can last 12 years and probably 20 in the end, um, you know, then you start to see that Ripple go out further and further, and that brand has a much bigger effect all the way across the world. Um, I mean, we've been working in Chicago for 12 years and rent for 12 years, and, you know, they've just been in every country, in every language. Chicago's in Japan right now, you know, Sao Paulo, Brazil. I mean, you know, a brand is no longer... um, just a New York idea that, you know, and I think it makes the kind of work that we do more important to clients. Because I think it, it used to be that a poster for a show was sort of the specific moment right then. You know, the star was on it, and that's what you saw. Um, but now I think everyone wants us to build enough of a brand that if you saw it on a marquee in Japan, you would know what it was. I think that's, that's certainly true, and you've done so many of them. I mean, in terms of you know, the advertisements for brands that you are seeing worldwide now. I mean, it must be a really, it must be really gratifying, you know, you as a spot, as a Spaco founder, okay, I, to I, be traveling around the world and seeing your work. I ran into a, a, girl, a girl was sitting next to me at Hair recently in, the, in Central Park, the production, which is kind of moved to Broadway, and we're going to work on, and... Um, she, we met each other, and she had incredible enthusiasm. And she said she was hoping to see the show ten times. And I was, and we were talking, and she asked me what I did, and I told her. And she told me, and she showed me a picture on her phone that when she was in college, I guess she was a recent graduate, she had painted the Rent logo on all three walls of her dorm room, um, like one enormous logo that wrapped around. It's always amazing when you meet people like that because you know you sort of do the work that you do, and you really have no sense of the ramifications further out. And frankly, it isn't it isn't us that creates that. It's it's the love the love of theater is you know something that we sort of borrow by doing a good job with. Um, and so it's always amazing 
to sort of work on something that has so much pop culture. You know, you go out on the street or you go, I was just in London and there's a lot of pieces of our work up there and it's very public and, um, you know, it's sort of a part of the culture, certainly a part of street culture um, there. And, um, you know, at one point somebody sent me a photo of, our Chicago logo sort of translated to Cyrillic and in neon in uh, right near Red Square in in Moscow. So I mean that's just sort of amazing to see that kind of breath, I guess. And you know I'm glad it's for this and not for you know mufflers. <laughs> I don't know if you would be really any good at selling mufflers. You have I too much passion in you, Drew. <laughs> I would not be good at selling mufflers. <laughs> I mean, don't you really need to love your product and be passionate for your product in order to put everything from the creative process into it and make it alive? Well, we began as a design studio, and kind of what we learned as a design studio was, you know, everybody would like you to figure out a way to get as much emotion as you can into the work that sort of is, is, is you know, in the design. And, you know, the beauty of the Broadway stuff is we are the coming attraction. There isn't anything else. So in the same way that you sit in a movie theater and see a trailer and get, ooh, that looks good, that looks interesting, that looks sexy or exciting or funny or whatever, we kind of have to do the same thing with the, the visual work that we do up front, whether it's TV, radio, or print. And so that makes it kind of a joy because our work has always been kind of a motive and the real challenge of it is to sort of see if you can get some of the emotion that's in the project itself reflected in the other mediums that you're working on. Um, and, and really that's the greatest challenge is, you know, like hair, you know, if you go to see the show Hair in Central Park, it's incredibly exuberant and that music and let the sun shine in and the age of Aquarius and it's so of the moment right now with Barack and Hope and, you know, kind of reclaiming and green and all the things that are happening. And so the, the challenge is, can we take all that energy that only happens in a live place and get it into something else? And so, um, you know, I just would never have that kind of energy for mufflers or, you know, pampers or whatever it might be. You know, I start off with a project that has so much emotion that, you know, the, the goal is to channel the emotion, not to sort of invent it which no, is such true. a better job. I think Marshall McLuhan would agree with you, you know? <laughs> um, you know, you have to, in order to create great creative, and you know this from, you know, the doing starting out by doing graphics. I mean, you have to capture the emotion, and when you capture the emotion, you're going to capture the world. The medium is the message, right? Well, if you can capture the emotion, you sort of capture people's attention. I think it used to be that you would make these posters, and I think people wanted to know the plot. And now I think they really just want to know the emotion. Um, they want to know how will it feel to go to this thing, you know. And so that you know, the more that you can capture any kind of emotion, and the more genuine you can make that emotion feel. I think everyone has gotten so good at sniffing out manipulation or um, kind of false emotion. You know, the TV commercials that make you cry, you know, there's sort of a resentment factor sometimes when you feel so manipulated. So, you know, a big part of that is, well, both getting the emotion to be genuine and getting the emotion to be accurate. We've, all, we've worked on projects where you thought a project was going to seem like something, and then when you finally got the final version, it was a very different show. And, you know, the worst thing that can happen is sometimes the work that you do doesn't match how the show turns out. Because we're often doing our work before the show is finished or even before the show is up on its feet. So, you know, you've got to get, you've got to be sure that what you're making is absolutely spot on and mostly in line with what you're going to be delivering. 
because you're prom- you're basically promising people. I-, I like to call it the emotional promise that you're making, um, saying, you know, if you put down your money and come see this thing, it will feel like what the way I'm speaking to you now, whether it's radio, TV, or print, and print being the trickiest of the three. But you are absolutely saying to them, you know, on the, the early rent ads, the question was, you know, how can we get a kind of urgency, a kind of street, pop, cool, rock and roll, you know, and, and doing that. Um, we did a show, a poster for Freak with John Leguizamo, and we all decided that what we wanted was for it to seem like he was making it up on the spot. The reality is John is an incredibly method actor who doesn't make it up on the spot at all. He's really, really builds his character from inside out and, you know, does it the sort of same way night after night and builds his craft that way. But so the poster ended up being the sort of street drawing that was very um, frenetic and really had this sense of exuberance that he has when he's out on stage. When we first did the Chicago poster, I was told by a lot of people who went before they'd seen the show that they thought it wasn't a good representation of what the show really was thinking back to the fact that there actually had been a production in 1975. Wow, well, well, listen, we have to take a commercial break. We'll continue more with this. When you come back, we have Drew Hodges, the founder of Spaco. Stay tuned. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Movie premieres, TV specials, radio shows, film festivals, restaurant openings, fashion shows, charity events, yachts, parties. Festivals. At Rack and Roll Productions, we do everything except make empty promises. Grand openings, book releases, speaking engagements, television, movies, radio. Rack and Roll Productions gets the job done whether it's an intimate party or a production with 2,000 people. In fact, you've probably seen and heard our work on the E! Channel, MTV, The Howard Stern Show, or in the pages of numerous newspapers and magazines. Now it's time for us to assist you. Turn saleability into profitability with the help of Rack and Roll Productions. Visit us online at www.rackandrollentertainment. That's R A K N R O L L Entertainment.com. Or call 1 818 597 0700. Movie premieres, charity events, TV specials, radio. Rack and Roll Productions, we do it all. www.rakandrollentertainment.com. There's a purpose revolution sweeping the world. Now more than ever before, in the midst of so many things they could do, people are asking what they should do. Since 1991, John Stanko has been helping people all over the world answer these questions. Now John is bringing his purpose message and philosophy to Voice America, where you will hear from people of purpose like John, who have found what they were created to do. Join John and his guests from around the world every week on his show, Your Purpose Quest, 6 a.m. Pacific, 9 a.m. Eastern. Right here on Voice America. Looking for a good time? We've got a show that will give you a wild ride. This show will make you feel good. And it's not even bad for you. You need your time to let loose. 
It's time for a feel-good party. Pull up to the computer, mix yourself a drink, and turn up the speakers. Happy Hour is here. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, it's called the biggest radio show in the world. Hosted by international personality and pundit, Michael DeMarco. You don't know what's coming next. The biggest radio show in the world on Voice America. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Stars of PR with Cindy R. If you have a question or comment, call in toll free at 1 866 472 5788. Now back to the show. Here's Cindy Rakowitz. That's Cindy Rakowitz from Blackman Rakowitz Public Relations, and I'm hosting Drew Hodges from Spaco, who has just collaborated with DeWinters, making it a big worldwide super shop. Congratulations again. Thank you very much. Listen, we said in previous conversations that you like it when other people talk about you, so I do that really well, you know? <laughs> I know. I don't have much to say. Uh, no, no. Actually, you have a lot to so say. Well. You have a lot to say. I wanted to talk a little bit about your background because it's very interesting. You talked about, you know, the fact that, you were in graphic design, but you also talked about the fact that you really were very much entrenched in the rock and roll business. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, I, uh, I went to School of Visual Arts in New York to be a graphic designer, where I was lucky enough to work with uh, a very well-known graphic designer named Paula Scher, who's a partner of Pentagram, and I started working in her studio when I was a senior in college. And she was famous for working in rock and roll. She was uh, she did all these Chicago covers and Billy Joel and David Bowie and things like that um, at CBS. She was one of the senior art directors at CBS Records before it became Sony, before it became Sony Worldwide. Why? So um, I started with sort of a hand in music uh, and records, and we worked on the relaunch of Blue Note, and we worked on some other pieces like that. So when I started my own studio, I actually began by working on Swatch, uh, you know, the the Swiss watches. Oh, yeah, Uh, well, that's a very hip campaign. And wasn't MTV one of the original big placements with Swatch? Well, it was, and actually one of the reasons. So then I, I worked on Swatch for quite a while. I was kind of their art director, not of the watches, but all their promotion. And they were one of the first companies to do things like BMX bikers and Fat Boys and Thompson Twins and Keith Haring signings and really unconventional kinds of promotion. And I got to design all the materials that went with that, which still seems to resonate through our work today. And um, after that, um, they did some collaborations with MTV, and so I started to work with MTV and Nickelodeon and a lot of cable work. Um, I've really been incredibly fortunate to be around three different sort of industry explosions. One was Swatch really was a a watch explosion. I know we see watch ads everywhere now, but it was really kind of a dormant industry before Swatch came into it. And then I really got involved in the cable industry as it sort of blew up and worked on MTV and TBS and Nickelodeon and really all of those brands. That was sort of a branding bonanza because everybody needed to figure out exactly who they were and how to express that. And then out of working on a lot of MTV, um, I got to do, start to do some work in records um, and did work with uh, Sony here in New York and did quite a bit of work for Geffen Records, which became DreamWorks Records on the West Coast. And we would do things like Aerosmith album covers and uh, Lisa Loeb and, and pieces like that. And that is actually what brought me into Broadway was um, David Geffen became involved with Rent 
and decided, this shows you what a shrewd businessman he is, he decided that he really wanted to try and sell that show, not in the show tune racks in the back of the record store, but, um, and I think he was specifically involved in the soundtrack of the, of the, uh, of the Broadway show, which is really called the cast album. People on Broadway will chastise me. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> Broadway shows have cast albums. Anyways, he wanted it to be in the front of the store and really cross it over. And so he was convinced that he wanted a graphic that didn't look like what a traditional Broadway show looked like. And so that's how I got brought in. And Rent was the very first thing that we ever worked on, um, which is sort of amazing as we head into the final two weeks of Rent. Rent closes on September 7th. Uh, well, listen, but, God, that show is running for a long time. Yeah, no, I mean, it's kind of it's a wonderful thing, actually, because we've had this super resurgence as it it sort of run long enough that it was sort of the moment all around the world. Then it was seen as sort of a lovely moment, but kind of a teenager moment. And now it's sort of back and really sees its sort of relevance. It's been kind of restated again, and, and that's really been wonderful. So that's how I started was um, through David Geffen and Records. Um, and the good thing, you know, the thing that I learned from Cable and Records was that you had to be really clear what a – you know, literally, I remember once we worked on something for Bonnie Ray and something from Patty Skialfa around the same time, Bruce Springsteen's wife, and they look a little similar. And they're in a, a nearby genre, and there was a whole conversation about how each one, what was unique about each brand and, and how each one needed to be made different. And the same thing on cable. At one point, we worked on Nickelodeon, and we were working on the Cartoon Network. And they were both really trying to figure out how one was not the same as the other, you know, the audience member, the voice, the tone, the personality. And that really taught me that kind of specificity that you need to have when you're working on a project, how you figure out what is the voice, what is the personality of that individual project that you're on. Um, and actually that leads to why we want to do this thing with Two Winners in London. Two Winners in London is the number one shop and has been for 30 years and did Phantom and Les Mis and, you know, all the, all the sort of major brands out of London. And, you know, what you find is if you're doing a good job with a client, everyone starts to learn this personality that is the show, how that show walks and talks and sings and dances and what is not that show. And when clients go to take that show to some other market, Oftentimes, that knowledge is lost, and so the hope is that by working, you know, kind of across globally, we can make sure that whatever knowledge is gained over the launch of a, a brand, a show brand, stays around that tone. That uh, it is a funny thing, but people from all over the world work on things for Chicago and send them to me, and I have to approve them. And very often, they stray from the brand that we've set up, and you really have to very clear as to what is and is not the core of the brand and make sure that everyone stays on message. Oh, it's, it's true, very true. And I, just for my listeners, I, I want to really share with them your impressive roster of shows that you represent. I mean, everything is so different to give some examples from, you know, Avenue Q with what we call the deliciously demented puppets, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, Chicago and Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. I mean, in terms of what Baco and De Winters, um, you know, represents together. It's like the whole. It, it's the whole live theater world. It's really. It's really kind of crazy. And I'm sure that you all have to take such a different approach to feeling what each of these shows are about, and then you know, translating it to advertising that's going to bring people into the theaters and engage them. I mean, in the Heights. I mean, it's so diverse, but yet you know, 
it's you you are clearly the kings of the category. So talk about some of the things that you know some of the um, shows that you represent and how they might be different and what excited you about each of them and you could pick whichever out of the hundreds of shows that you represent. Let me think about it. Uh, well, so one of the great things about the job is that the shows keep changing. So instead of working on one account all the time, I have that you know that difference is so much fun, and you will literally go from you know Diary of Anne Frank to some, you know to Puppetry of the Penis, you know, in the sort of in a day. So you know uh, that that is always amazing, and uh, trying to figure out the different personalities is a joy. I remember we were working with Edward Alvey on. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? And we presented him this graphic that had the title in the ice cubes in the glass. And he said to me, "My play," he talks like that, "is not about drinking." <laughs> so you know, one of the the challenges on the drama side is trying to capture. You know, a, a great play has complex themes. You know, a great piece of PR advertising or you know brand, you know whatever, tends to simplify. And so there's there's always a, a fear on the dramatist part, and they're very much involved. You know, you very much have a, have an involvement with a director, with a playwright, with a leading actor. Um, and, and you know, there's always a concern that we're going to reduce what they're doing down to something more shallow than it is. So you know, the biggest tricks I think have been getting things like the vagina monologues or doubt. Or I mean, we've worked on five different Pulitzer Prize winners, which is a real joy to do. Um, and most of those were dramas. Rent was a Pulitzer Prize winner. Um, so, you know, getting those dramas um, to feel as, um, you know, deep as they, as, they, as they are really feels great. In the Heights, well, we've worked on several different productions that really push out the audience category. Rent started that by really getting the crowd younger. And I remember we wrote, I wrote a headline on the subway that said, Don't You Hate the Word Musical, which was intended to be controversial. <laughs> But that was really out there to say I knew that the younger audience we wanted was really skeptical of the idea of seeing a musical. A musical was Oklahoma to them. Um, we've come such a long way from them. Um, so that was kind of a joy to figure out how to get... Uh, again, we were advertising the subways, which is unusual. We were telling people in the subways how to buy a ticket because we didn't assume that the people who were going to rent knew the classic ways to get a ticket. And we had to tell them you can get a ticket at the same place you buy your rock and roll stuff. So that was a joy. When we worked on John Leguizamo, I'm Freak, we really found a Latino audience that hadn't been attending Broadway and how to get them in. Um, Color Purple was a huge breakthrough in really getting we had had some success on Broadway with black audiences attending, but they were pretty much star-based, Denzel Washington or Sean Combs or someone like that. Color Purple was one of the first times we had a sustained Broadway attendance um, that wasn't sort of a, you know, personality-based and really found an incredible audience that was so passionate. Um, and so that was a real joy to figure out how to talk to that audience um, and, and, you know, every time we've been working on these things, the vaginal monologues was kind of an amazing experience to really reach out in kind of a feminist way. I mean, vaginal monologues raised something like eight or nine million dollars towards, you know, nonviolent, you know, towards shelters for better women across the country. So, you know, the ones that really stand out for me were ones that had a sense of outreach. In the Heights, in the end, it's really not wanting to be positioned as a hip-hop show, but it has a real sense of hip-hop and its musicality. 
And you know, to get that show to win the Tony for Best Musical is kind of the things that move the art form forward, you know. And, and so those are the things you end up being most proud of. Okay, Drew. Well, listen, we're going to take another commercial break, but we have so much more to discuss. I told you the show goes very quickly. <laughs> I want to thank Drew Hodges. Creative Director of Spaco, stay tuned for more. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Movie premieres, TV specials, radio shows, film festivals, restaurant openings, fashion shows, charity events, yachts, parties, festivals. At Rack and Roll Productions, we do everything except make empty promises. Grand openings, book releases, speaking engagements, television, movies, radio. Rack and Roll Productions gets the job done whether it's an intimate party or a production with 2,000 people. In fact, you've probably seen and heard our work on the E! Channel, MTV, The Howard Stern Show, or in the pages of numerous newspapers and magazines. Now it's time for us to assist you. Turn saleability into profitability with the help of Rack and Roll Productions. Visit us online at www.rackandrollentertainment, that's R-A-K-N-R-O-L-L, entertainment.com, or call 1-818-597-0700. Movie premieres, charity events, TV specials, radio. Rack and Roll Productions, we do it all. www.rakandrollentertainment.com. Radio by George is a lifestyle program dedicated to improving the lives of listeners by focusing on the holistic growth of their mind, body, and spirit. Host Eddie George shares his life experiences as well as the experiences of his guest commentators and experts with the listening audience to focus them toward reaching their personal and professional goals. Tune in every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. PST, 4 p.m. EST to Radio by George on the Voice America channel and learn more from the life experiences of a man who went from being a somewhat unruly kid in the streets of Philadelphia to a retired professional athlete who has become a role model for not only young people, but for businessmen and women globally. Plan to spend your Monday afternoons with Eddie George and his empowering talk radio show, Radio by George. That's every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Cindy Rakowitz has won more awards than she can hang on her wall, including three Clios. Call in now at 1-866-472-5788, and you can have one. Okay, maybe not, but she will answer your questions. Now back to Stars of PR with Cindy R. Yes, that's Cindy Rakowitz, co-founder of Blackman Rakowitz Public Relations, and we're here again with Drew Spock, Drew from Spaco, Drew Hodges from Spaco, who has so many stories. Um, I don't know. I think we have to make a three-hour show for you. But I don't have three Cleos. Oh, I know. Are you impressed by that or what? Very impressed. Absolutely. When I was at Playboy Enterprises, Inc., I was, an, I was 
head of everything, you know, in the company that had to do with creative. So um, one of the things that reported to me was brand advertising in addition to PR. So I was the one that managed the agencies, and I have to tell you, I was very tough. <laughs> I don't doubt it. I was I very, don't very doubt tough. It. Well, no, you were the one who, I mean, there's an example of a brand that really evolved but really knew what it was and what it wasn't. And I think, you know, you, all, you know the brand best. I mean, that's an interesting thing about what we do is you end up working with a playwright or a, a composer like Lin-Manuel um, uh, off of um, In the Heights, and they know it, and they've lived it for years, and you're just beginning to learn it. Their biggest fear is that you will give it some kind of quick coat of paint rather than really understanding the depth of what they do. Um, and so you know, that's the joy of it is when you feel like you have their respect because they feel like what you did was give voice to, you know, something that they've been working on for years. Oh, I think it's fantastic. And one of the things I want to commend you for, because you, your agency and you really do it well, is I think that you recognize how advertising may have changed, um, maybe not so much in its creative in basics, but in terms of the platforms that are available to advertise in. And, you know, for example, Internet advertising has become, you know, a huge part of the way that we see people market their brands today, and I know in, you know, with the puppets from Avenue Q, Spaco had a really fun platform to work with and engage in, not really change, not really change the basic advertising um, package, but adapting to the platforms in a really meaningful way. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, I'm going to take it back even further. When we first started, it was like, uh, you know, one of the first things that we did and why we enjoyed coming to the Broadway market was we basically took more modern entertainment tools and applied them to theater. I remember when we photographed the cast of Rent in Chicago, I was told, why would we photograph them? They're not famous people. So the idea of using photography as sort of a brand element just wasn't there in Broadway, that you only used photography if if um, you, know, you were shooting Liza Minnelli and the idea of photography, you know, the Broadway show ad was a graphic. It was always a graphic, and I think it had been a graphic for 70 years. So we moved that into sort of more of a photography place, and that was sort of the beginning. And then we started to put print in places where people didn't go before, like the subway and streets like that. And then that's led us up to web now. And, and, and I think web, everyone is still trying to figure out where web fits in the mix because on one level, Everyone wants a strong site, and um, you know all the Broadway shows have good sites and have lots of extra information. On the other hand, what people don't want to do is be talking consistently to the people who are already buying their tickets. How do you get out and get the attention of people who are curious about a Broadway show, um, but maybe are not a fan yet? So um, you get that breath out of it. So obviously, we do search engine marketing and we do all that kind of maximization. Um, and we do free downloads, and we do behind-the-scenes looks, and we do video content, and we and do viral all those marketing. pieces. I that mean, let's not forget, though, I mean, viral marketing and, you know, having the message, you know, virally, you know, transmitted through the right. many mediums. Um, we, had, we had a lot of success this year with a campaign that we did uh, for a, a character called Cubby Bernstein, who was really invented. Uh, uh, Xanadu is a client of ours, and they asked us, to work on a Tony campaign, and we had had a lot of success on a Tony campaign for Avenue Q, which used uh, the political climate four years ago um, to satirize um, running for a Tony and, and ultimately was given some credit for helping that show beat Wicked and win the Tony for Best Musical that year. Um, and so 
we invented this character named Cubby Bernstein, um, who was a, a Tony campaign manager, a kind of a Jeremy Piven character from Entourage, except for we cast him as a six-year-old boy um, and really gave him, or Douglas Carter Bean, the creator of Xanadu, um, wrote it and gave him the language of a very old-school Broadway advisor. And we started, they, we started to make a series of videos that we did with the, with the production team of the show in a real collaboration um, that uh, were dropped on the Internet in, in sort of episode form as this uh, Cubby Bernstein character who was played by an actor um, advised people how to win a Tony, what they need to wear, what benefits they need to show up for in a very satirical way. And in the end, I think the last video had Nathan Lane in it, and it's got um, a couple million hits off of YouTube. That it, it, it was really made for a very small audience. There are 700 Tony voters, uh, and that's who we made it for, um, because on the web you can really narrow cast as well as broadcast. But in the end, it became kind of a very pop culture moment um, and a really different kind of a thing for Broadway. You know, again, there's always a concern that Broadway is a bit insular, and we're always looking for ways that Broadway can become more a part of the popular culture you know, world that is occupied by movies and records and television. Well, I'm starting to get some questions from our listening audience, and what I do is I just read them to you as I get them. Jerry from Chicago asks, if you think that the dead economy is affecting Broadway sales, ticket sales at all, I mean, and I think that, you know, from my standpoint, it seems to me as if Broadway is doing great because it falls into the category of a luxury brand, and that doesn't seem to be hit as hard by the recession. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, there have been, um, I mean, truthfully, I think it will have an effect, but there have been recessions before, and Broadway was traditionally less hard hit than, say, the housing market or other places, because... You know, if you if you traditionally take a bigger vacation, you may cut your vacation back and come to New York. Um, if you're, you know, the one thing that people tend not to cut back are sort of special event things like anniversaries or birthdays or things for their kids that are, you know, the place they don't scrimp. You know, so um, so far. We haven't seen that. Uh, there's been some reporting that the financing of various projects is a little bit slower than it has been in the past. Um, you know, Broadway is backed by you know a series of fundraisers, uh, you know, primarily wealthy individuals who put the money in, sort of philanthropy. And we've seen a bit of a slowdown there. There have been a couple shows that have not come through this year that people were expecting to come through. Godspell was one. Um, so that's the place where we've seen it the most. But on a ticket-buying trend, we haven't seen it. Um, and we're selling tickets a good five, six months out. So we're not just talking about now and this summer, which has been a perfectly great summer, but even into Christmas in the winter, you know, the successes are still the successes, and the big shows seem to be selling well. Uh, no, I think that's fantastic. And now we actually got a question from Europe, precisely from Paris, France. Do you approach advertising differently when you are doing in different international markets? Um, when you, I think one of the things that we've discussed in the past is the ability to think globally and act locally. I think we've called it a bumper sticker together. But would you approach, let's say, you know, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, differently in Beijing than you would when you're in London? Well, obviously, Beijing is a really specific market because uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber has been there with some shows, and 
and I didn't work on them, but there are real cultural things to understand. So you would. Um, on one hand, someone like Priscilla Queen the Desert asked us to consider the various markets they were going to play as we made the, the creative. So, you know, something that might have been appropriate in Australia, you know, say, you know, the, the more you know, the drag queen character from the show as a lead in London did seem to feel like it was equivalent to their pantos, their Christmas shows, which are much campier and lighter and shorter and really not perceived as sort of major entertainment. So you absolutely try and come up with a brand that crosses over. Um, but on the other hand, I think if you ignore the local, uh, particularly the market you're going into, I think because that, that can be as much timing as place, that you've got to realize in a theater market, what are the other shows playing when you go in, what are the other attractions, and what are they bringing into the marketplace, and what's your unique selling point that is unlike the competition. And that's as true of New York as it is of Seattle as it is of Paris. That you know, you've always got to be considering what came before you, what comes after you, and what's on while you're there. Um, and we are seeing much more. On a much simpler note, we're seeing a lot more ad materials that we're making in multiple languages, uh, even just for Broadway, where um, you know the backs of brochures and things are translated into seven, eight, nine languages. We're seeing websites get much better at being able to be read in whatever language you might be, you know, aware of. We're seeing touring schedules that are worldwide instead of in any given country. Um, so um, the web is probably our best way to do that. But we do change what we're doing. Um, and also, it is a campaign. Sometimes we launch in a certain way in a market and feel that an image is either working or really not working. Um, you know, we've had images on Chicago that culturally people found too sexual, too provocative, and asked us to pull. I don't think that would be a problem in Paris. Um, but, Maybe um, in China? <laughs> But in China, right, you wouldn't do that. Um, I think, um, you know, that's something we're really aware of. Even some, a lot of Chicago images are women alone, um, but there are markets where we're more apt to include men, just because there's just a greater sense of that sort of romance, and, and we'll do it that way. So there are decisions that are made. I think a really good Broadway campaign has many notes. And on the big shows that we work on, it's much less about one poster and more about a body of materials that you have, and you can decide what to start with, what messages are really catching on. And oftentimes we'll adapt pieces once we're in a marketplace. We will change a radio spot. We will emphasize something that um, we were less aware of. Um, but, you know, sometimes you'll find that a song is really well-known in a particular country, um, through some other means. You know, an ice skater has used it all through the Olympics or something like that. Um, so um, we're always adapting um, once we see what's working in the beginning. Um, and sometimes that means a big change or focusing on one element of the campaign. Okay, well, we have one more commercial breakthrough. And um, a lot of people are sending in a lot of questions, which means a lot of people are actually listening to this show. So it means that you're very relevant, and I'm very happy to have you. But stand by, and we'll come right back for the last segment with Drew Hodges. Thank you. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Movie premieres, TV specials, radio shows, film festivals, restaurant openings, fashion shows, charity events, yachts, parties, festivals. At Rack and Roll Productions, we do everything except make empty promises. Grand openings, book releases, speaking engagements, television, movies, radio. Rack and Roll Productions gets the job done whether it's an intimate party or a production with 2,000 people. In fact, you've probably seen and heard our work on the E! Channel, MTV, The Howard Stern Show, or in the pages of numerous newspapers and magazines. Now it's time for us to assist you. Turn saleability into profitability with the help of Rack and Roll Productions. Visit us online at www.rackandrollentertainment. That's R A K N R O L L Entertainment.com. Or call 1 818 597 0700. Movie premieres, charity events, TV specials, radio. Rack and Roll Productions, we do it all. www.rakandrollentertainment.com. Real Talk with Marcy Mason. A refreshing and charming talk radio show for all of you entertainment enthusiasts. Whether you're stargazing on Hollywood Boulevard or in the stands cheering for your favorite team, Real Talk is here to satisfy the curiosity of the dedicated lifestyle and entertainment enthusiasts by giving everyday people the information they crave about what's going on in their communities and the world around them. Don't miss Real Talk with Marcy Mason, broadcasting live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. Did you do your homework today? Relationship Homework is a program about working with others in the home and in the workplace. Relationships with others are vital in getting work done. You'll learn guidance and reclaim the power to expand your capacity to take effective action in your relationships at home and at work. Each program will include a weekly homework assignment to take back and implement over the following week. Join host Udall DeOleo for Relationship Homework every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Get free advice from crisis communications guru Cindy Rakowitz now. Call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now let's get back to more stars of PR. Here's your host and founder of Rack and Roll Public Relations, Cindy Rakowitz. We're back in our final segment with the king of live theater advertising, Drew Hodges, and he is the founder of Spaco, which has now collaborated with the Winters, and now it's the live entertainment agency super shop. And again, we congratulate you for all of that. And Drew, you were, Playbill also said some nice things about you, too. You could quote Playbill if you want. Oh, you're going to put it in my lips? Playbill <laughs> well, said listen, we are I'm arguably... telling you that Playboy said it, so I'm opening the door for you to show you that it was the publication itself that said it. Right, I didn't say it. Playbill did an interview with me, and they said we are arguably the most powerful uh, theatrical ad agency in the world, which was, that was exciting. It's a little power. It's powerful. Like, I don't think that you could have written a, an ad. <laughs> no, and I don't think I would have written an ad that said it, but it's nice that they said it, indeed. All right, well, listen, we want to ask you a little bit about advertising and how you tie it into current events and making it contemporary, and I think you've done that really well with Avenue Q, and it's a billboard that you have up on Times Square, and it's telling people to vote. Talk about that a little bit. Um, Avenue Q particularly, one of its, again, when you start off with a brand, the first thing we try and do is figure out what we want the brand to seem like, what we want the play to seem like, the musical to seem like. And one of the things about Avenue Q is it's incredibly contemporary. 
and he talks about things that happen right now. And there were so many other things on Broadway that really don't take place now, um, whether it's Hairspray in the 50s or you know, Jersey Boys in the 60s or Phantom in the 30s or, you know, they're, they're one of its assets is that it's a contemporary piece. And so that led us to, to really think that it could be a campaign where the puppets themselves, and it's easier with puppets, could comment on um, current events. And so when we first did the Tony campaign, I talked about the puppets themselves parodied all the other Broadway shows as they opened. Um, and uh, the gay puppet said Fabu, and it was Taboo, and, and uh, just a, a series of ads where Avenue Q sort of saluted and made fun of the other shows coming on. It's a really satirical play. And so there's a billboard in Times Square um, um, that basically just advises you to vote, and it has Rod, the gay puppet on it, who has, who has a button on that says, you know, I want to be the next Elle Woods. Um, so, you know, really referring to the reality show that was on picking the lead for Legally Blonde. So, um, you know, oftentimes we'll write very inside jokes into things because people love to feel like they're, they're getting it with you. Um, and that, you know, that it, the show seems contemporary. You know, I, I'm often amazed by how many people do work on pieces that are comedies and the work itself isn't funny. And, and I, again, back to that emotional promise piece, if you're saying your show is contemporary and a comedy, then your ads had better be, you know, about the things that are happening today and they should be funny. I, I would um, hope. You got, I again, know, and it look- is amazing how often that is not the case, actually, that people don't really attempt. I think they think that advertising is sort of about brand repeating. It would just put the logo out there a lot and show it over and over again. And or, yeah, it's by. like the, yeah, the old direct marketing call to action, like buy tickets now. Right, that that really works. This morning I sent a frustrated email back to a client who's putting four quotes into her fall preview New York Times ad as if I don't believe that people believe in those quotes. I think they're very skeptical that perhaps we've manipulated them in some way. And I think that they don't buy that way. They're trying to have a feeling for what the piece is, not to be told. Um, so um, it's often a difficult argument that people, it is a very old school idea that you can sort of include three quotes and everyone says, well, it says hilarious, so it must be. Okay. You know, it'd be mu- it's a much better idea to actually make a hilarious ad. Um, we did an ad for Shrek recently that was um, an entire, a full page of fake um, ABCs, ABCs being the listings in the New York Times that, you know, that are actually paid for. People think it's a New York Times service, but it isn't. But they, um, you know, just give the minimum of what you need to know to go to a show, and they're in alphabetical order. And so we wrote all fake shows by Captain Hook, who loved the white powder, Captain Hook, and, um, you know, it really took all the fairy tale creatures of the show and gave them each their own Broadway show um, parody. And that was really a successful ad because it was so, it, it was much funnier to be funny than to run some quote that said, you know, I, I laugh my bleep off. It, no one believes that. Now you have um, to touch the emotions. I mean, I think that's really, I, you know, that's really the deal. Yeah, if it's a comedy, you gotta make, you gotta make people belly laugh with the advertising so they have the emotion and the mood to know that they're gonna belly laugh with the show. Yeah, and that experience becomes genuine to them, whereas telling them something somebody else said is suspect and not genuine to them. They didn't read it themselves, and frankly, when the review lands and it really says what you say it says, that is its own power, and people read it and get it that way. They don't need me to repeat it. Oh, it's really true. Now, listen, um, I have some other people that are asking questions, so I guess we have a lot of 
um, people who want to go into advertising types listening to the show because they're asking me to ask you, Mr. Founder of Spaco, what exactly does a creative director do? <laughs> Good question. Well, I started as a designer. So, you know, obviously as a designer, you're working with a writer, and as a good designer, you're working with a writer and kicking around a concept as to, and multiple concepts as to how an ad works. Um, then, um, as you work your way up, you often become an art director, and art directors usually oversee designers, continue to work on concepts, and um, oftentimes we'll be picking photographers and illustrators as well as overseeing designers. Um, and then... I would say the level above an art director is a creative director who basically oversees art directors who oversee designers. For me, creative director title meant a change from moving out of just print and really overseeing radio and television and online as well. So you're really overseeing lots of different creatives, us creative director, um, who are working for you and, and trying to coordinate them, trying to um, keep everybody on the same idea, the same brand, trying to excite them, trying to get out of the way so that they can really do good work, and probably the most unsung task, you're, you're presenting the work to the client and trying to convince them that it's the right way they should go. You know, the point I just made about the quotes, just because you can figure out where you're certain this thing should go doesn't mean you can get everyone else to accept that direction. So creative directors are often known as people who both oversee the work and hopefully can... Well, let me ask you a question. What do you think? Have you watched the show Mad Men? Yes. <laughs> what do you think about it? Are there parallels? Even though what you know, it's so right specific to... about that time that you know it, it's it makes now seem so earnest. You know, the idea that you could sort of drink midday and then smoke and then you know the advertising stuff is always true. Um, I think you know the. The day of the sort of perfect slogan that everyone just attaches, even up to where's the beef, I don't think advertising works quite the same way these days. So in some ways, I think that show is about a culture where writers led the way, and I think we're in more of a world now where visuals are leading the way in collaboration with writers. So, um, so I think that that's a big difference from what you see in Mad Men to um, the way an advertising agency works now. Advertising has really become a kind of entertainment. Um, I don't think it was as much in that day. It was very static in that day. You, you were limited to the mediums. It was, you had radio, you had, you know, basic TV, I mean, without cable, Right, and then you had print, so you didn't have all of this fluidity. And right, and now so many people are looking to make advertising that doesn't seem like advertising. I don't know if you've really, you know, Mad Men is now doing these sort of these sort of intro sentences between their show into the ad that sort of say, "Did you know how many people smoked in such and such a day?" Or that that really are kind of interesting ways to make the ads feel like an extension of the programming. Um, so um, I think everyone is looking to make advertising that feels more like entertainment. And I think it's true, and people don't want to be told what to do, particularly these days when it's an interactive society. You know, they kind of want to... So the successful campaigns, the key to a successful campaign is just make it seem so organic, like it is the buyer's, the consumer's idea, and I think that you do that very well. We have a couple of minutes left king of creative advertising, Drew Hodges. Anything you want to say in closing? 
Um, one, it's, it, you know, we're going to see how far we can take the idea of a brand going global. I think we're, I'm certainly not king of creative advertising. We're working in the live entertainment field, and that's a world that I love because I can get passionate about the stuff we're selling. You know, advertising is always the business of selling, but if you can sell something that you really feel like people should have and they do want in their lives and it does, it plays a real role. And I'm working on something that really has a, still has a legendary aspect. You know, there are a few American dreams and becoming a rock star, hitting that home run in the World Series and a Broadway opening night is still a part of kind of an American dream. So it's a real honor to work on it all. I think that's very well said. We want to thank you for joining us for an hour. I hope everybody learned a lot about the globalization of Broadway and everything they need to know about um, advertising for live theater because Spaco and DeWinters certainly own that category. Drew, you are a love on the show. I think you should broadcast more often. <laughs> Thanks so much. Cindy. So on that note, have a great day and more next week. Thank you for joining the show.